This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to the Dear Prudence show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Daniel M. Lavery. With me in the studio this week is Peter Labuza, an incoming postdoctoral fellow at the University of Southern California, where he just defended his dissertation when a handshake meant something, lawyers, deal-making, and the emergence of new Hollywood. Peter, welcome to the show. Hi, Danny. I'm really excited to be here. I'm thrilled. And I love, by the way, the title just like I, I'm picturing Fred McMurray saying that like it was when a handshake meant something. It, it, it's a very just like a big bo- corporate boardroom of people meeting in big piles of paper and everything. And that's that's what I decided to spend six and a half years of my life uh, trying to trying to figure out. I'm thrilled that you did. Thank you. I'm also excited that we double-checked with each other before uh, the show that we were both recording because finally, last week, I did the thing I've been living in fear of, which is that I appeared as a guest on somebody else's podcast. (gasps) And at the end of it, they had said to me, hey, whenever you get the chance, send over your recording, which we had discussed prior to doing the show. And I said, oh, no, I didn't (sighs) record it at all. I I have been on on a couple of podcasts uh, before where I've been the person who is the solo recorder and I just forgot to hit record and then having to apologize to my guests and be, can we please repeat 45 minutes of content? Yeah, I mean, obviously, on the grand scale of problems you can have, uh, it's it's not the biggest, but uh, certainly in terms of just like, oh, I just wasted somebody else's hour and a half. Um, it's it's not a great feeling. Not not good at all. But we're already doing better than that. And I, I'm, I'm going to get a chance to redo it all. Uh, she was very, very accommodating and understanding. So given that we are already doing better than I was doing last week, I feel confident that today's going to go great. I think we're going to help a lot of good people here. We've got um, what I am calling the era of difficult phone calls, it seems. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all having to like relearn phone etiquette and, and phone problems, I think. So this is uh, timely. Would you read our first letter? Of course, I would be happy to. Subject line, how do I jump off the grid for a week? Dear Prudence, I'm the only person in my family that gets along with everybody. As a result, I am the first person anyone contacts when they want to talk. I'm also a teacher under quarantine. It's been two of the toughest months of my entire career, and I'm wrung out. I want to take a week off the grid this summer. Work stuff is easy. I can set up an out-of-office email reply but I'm not sure how to tell my family, particularly my elderly relatives, that I need a week to recharge. If I use the word unreachable, I'll be met with a chorus of what-if questions. And the reality of COVID-19 is that I do feel the need to be reachable in case of an emergency. So part of what I'm grappling with is the guilt I'm feeling for even asking for time on my own. Do you think there's a way I could set up a week away or partially away so I'm honoring my family's fears and worries while also allowing myself some time to reset? I could feel this person's stress radiating off of this letter. It's it's always really tough to be like 
the super reliable one in like a group of friends or family. And I really empathize with the person who everyone kind of expects to always be there. And then you need your moment to just like take off. And it's like, but you feel you could never do that. Right. I do think, by the way, just to start this off, I think this is totally reasonable. I do think it's achievable. And I want to encourage the letter writer to move away from already like they're already trying to kind of undercut themselves. Like maybe I could do a week away or partially away. Like they've already kind of bargained themselves down from their original desire. There's not like a lot of emotional content that needs to be sort of like taken in this question. I feel like this is just kind of setting these clear boundaries of sort of logistics more than anything. And it's just kind of, because it seems like the issue is kind of like Uncle Jerry really, really wants to talk for an hour and really likes to talk Mm -hmm. for an hour more than it's an issue of like that someone's going to be really emotionally hurt if they're told, hey, I need to, you know, limit our phone call time for just this week. Right. So there's the kind of issue of how do I let my family know I need a vacation from them too without hurting their feelings? Um, And then also, how do I set up an actual way of getting in touch with me should an emergency arise, which might happen? I feel like the the problem that might come up with this is it seems to be that this person is the person, the family who gets along with everybody. And I feel like there's a problem of conflicts because my first thought was like, oh, maybe who's the second in command? Who's the person that can rely? But then it kind of becomes like, a series of like, you know, this person calls this person and this person calls that person. I feel like that can maybe get a little complicated and maybe that's why the letter writer is having this trouble thinking through the whole process. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think my suggestion there would be you don't need to solve that whole problem. You just need your week. So in terms of figuring out what are they going to do for that week, I think there's some stuff that the letter writer can kind of let go of. So I think the thing to do is just to to frame it like this. Um, I need a vacation. It's challenging to take a vacation when I can't leave the house. So I'm setting up a slightly, you know, artificial system whereby I'm going to be totally unplugged. I really need this. I'm really looking forward to it. I hope it's going to be really good. Um, so I just wanted you all to know in advance, there's going to be a week this summer where I won't be available to chat and catch up. I'll look forward to catching up with you guys the week after. If there's an emergency, please contact and then, you know, think about the person you would want to kind of act in your stead. Again, mm-hmm. this is just for like, if there's a matter of life and death, this is the person to get in touch with. They will contact me. We'll have arranged beforehand, like a signal for you need to come out of your hibernation. Um, but that's it. And so then you don't have to worry about like, how do I tell them? Here's who I think you can talk to instead of me during this week. Like you can let them solve that problem. You just need to come with them with a really clear sense of here's the vacation I'm taking. Here's the way in which I'll be taking it. Can't wait to talk to you afterwards. Here's the thing you'll do in an emergency. And that will hopefully anticipate all the possible objections that they would have. Does that strike you as reasonable? Yeah, I think that's along the lines of what I was thinking for the letter writer. I think the fact that the letter writer is willing to kind of be available in some way is actually a plus in trying to sort of solve the situation, even if like they should actually be more delineating on boundaries. But I think, yeah, just inform relatives, um, like who they should contact. You know, that one person hopefully is not also someone who likes to talk on the phone a lot, but understand, but the person that the letter writer trusts to kind of keep the distance from everybody, um, I think would really, really kind of just get everything in order. And I think this person is just trying to be very, very attentive to all the needs of their family and, is kind of understanding, oh, I kind of need to be attentive to myself for just a bit. And I think 
Mm-hmm. I think maybe even just putting a little more trust in the family might solve everything. And then the letter writer will have this great week. Everything will be fine. Nobody will get sick. Uh, they'll feel totally ready to take as many phone calls from family members afterwards. Yeah. And I think maybe the best thing to do in terms of uh, passing this information along is I would recommend emailing everybody. And again, if you don't want a long email thread where everyone's replying or being like, I can't believe you put me on a thread with Aunt Dora. Um, you know, you can either BCC everybody or like have a template where everyone gets the same information and you slightly personalize it, but do it in such a way that I think you're giving them this information in writing, um, so that they can refer to it. Uh, and, and also because it would be, I think kind of counterproductive to do like nine kind of tiring phone calls just to let everyone know you're taking the vacation. I think it might be actually a little easier for you since it sounds like maybe there's sometimes a tendency to cave in person or over the phone. It might be easier for you to say, this is what I'm doing if you have it written down. Um, and again, if you just frame it as like, I'm so excited about this, this is going to be such a good way for me to like really dive into solitude, reflection, contemplating the year to come. Uh, you know, people will tend to, I think, take that lead from you if you frame it as like, this is a very exciting, positive thing that I am doing that uh, centers solitude rather than this is a thing I'm doing to get away from you all because I'm exhausted. Yeah, I think that's a really great way is just kind of kind of almost putting in the thing, hey, I really need your help with this thing that I'm trying to do. Can you help mm-hmm. me in this way? I think that, you know, kind of getting everyone to feel like they're participating strangely in a way and doing something that's helpful for the letter writer will be much more mm-hmm. well-received than sort of trying to be like, I need you to back away from me. Right, right. And I'm definitely an advocate, I think, sometimes in situations like this, of doing that, like, slightly, like, putting a little spin on something <laughs> in order to make people feel like, oh, this is something I should be excited about, which is maybe not always uh, the the route you want to take. If if this were a different situation, it was like, I need to let some of my relatives know I can't take all of these calls. I would maybe have different advice. But in this situation, when it's kind of a one-off opportunity and you're not looking to redirect all of them all the time, um, I think a little spin is fine. Definitely. So this next one, by the way, I have just been sitting with because uh, I I still actually right now, I'm not 100% sure what my advice is going to be. So this is exciting. It's my turn to read and I don't know what I'm going to say. All right. The subject is money and trust. Dear Prudence, I was left in charge of the educational trust our mother left for her grandchildren. She believed wholeheartedly in education and left instructions that the money only be used for that purpose. My brother's two children went to college. My sister's kids wasted everything. The oldest bounced from major to major until the money ran out and never graduated. The second one went to three different trade schools and ended up managing a gas station. And the youngest failed high school. All the kids are now in their 20s. There's a large amount of money left in the trust, my youngest nephews share. He's now expecting a child. And my sister wants me to cash out the trust so he can get a car and have money for the baby. My brother's oldest daughter is going for her master's. I know our late mother's wishes would be to help my niece over her cousin. She and my sister spent the last years of her life fighting over what our mother called her entitlement. My sister would demand money for her debts, and my mother would deny her requests. I'm honestly tired of dealing with my sister and her kids. They have no shame and no appreciation for the sacrifices that their grandparents had to make. My wife thinks we should hold the money for the baby's college. What should I do? (sighs) My first thought here is to consult a lawyer uh, or a legal expert of some kind, because my guess is uh, if there's like, if if this 
trust was genuinely earmarked for education, it may be illegal to take out money for other purposes. Yeah, that was right? my first thought. It's, so this check in with a lawyer, not to say that they're going to solve everything for this person, but they're going to solve at least like, I think certain issues of like, I literally cannot give this to you in X or Y form because of the rules written into the trust. And that could at least start to alleviate some of the situation. Um, yeah, absolutely. The The other thing that I want to say before kind of diving into, I think, the pathways that the letter writer should take is, there, I do think this the letter writer needs a small reality check when they say that um, the, uh, the kids wasted everything, the sister's kids. Um, mm-hmm. Because, like, you know, sometimes exploring education is not necessarily the same thing as squandering. Like, a lot of people bounce from major to major. Some people go to a trade school and it doesn't work out. I don't think that they necessarily wasted it. I think the grandmother may, you know, have wanted them to finish their education and their college, but not, you know, college is not necessarily for everyone. And I don't think that's necessarily the same thing as wasting as kind of implied here. Right. I I felt the same way. I think especially like, you know, the second one went to a couple of trade schools and now manages a gas station. Like he has a job, he's a manager, Uh, you know, like, He's 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 working. He's he's taking care of himself. Um, failing high school, I don't know what went on there, but high school is really challenging. I think most people who fail high school are like struggling young people rather than just somebody who's like, I loved failing out of high school. I had a great time. I really enjoyed it. Like I got all the help I needed and just didn't give a shit. Like right. I, I feel like without saying you have to sign off on all the the choices that they've made. I, I agree that there's room there to let go of your investment or or judgment in how these kids may struggle with college or with trade school or what kind of jobs they do or don't have. I think the the pattern that I saw of like the pattern that the letter writer's mother had with the sister is one that I think the letter writer would be, I, th- I think it would be good for you to not get caught in that same cycle, right? Yeah. I think the question though is like how does the money go? And this is kind of gets to like the question of like, what is an education? Because I think one of the worries I have for this letter writer is that, you know, we can earmark this money for the, uh, I guess the nephew's uh, child to go to college 18, 19 years from now. I'm partially Mm -hmm. worried about that because, um, Maybe that, you know, because, you know, it takes so much money to raise a child these days and it's kind of crazy is like, that's a lot of waiting for an investment that, you know, you know, maybe the child ends up failing out of high school. So, you know, the money's still just kind of sitting there and you're still kind of wrapped with guilt. So, I mean, I don't know if this would work and everything, but my first thought was like, can this go maybe not, you know, directly into the bank accounts or anything, but like early education programs, right? Like preschool's really, really important important, really, really expensive. Like, is there some way that the letter writer could even just like be like, I can't give you this money except for education. However, like education can be thought of as a really, really broad set of choices. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think my, my only shift there would be, I, I would say first, I think the letter writer should find out legally what they can and can't do. But really, I think the thing the letter writer needs in this situation is you need to not be in charge of this educational trust anymore. Like, it it sounds like what you want is to not be involved in these squabbles or disagreements over who deserves the money, who doesn't. 
um, what what kind of education is worth paying for, like a master's now for someone else versus college for a baby in 18 years. It, it really just sounds like mostly what this person wants is to not have to make these calls or get involved in these kinds of arguments. So I think the second thing I would encourage you to ask that lawyer is like, how do you resign from from being the uh, steward of, of a, or executor of a trust? Mm-hmm. Because presumably you're allowed to, right? Like you don't have to be the executor of something if you've decided it's too much. No, I don't think you, I think there's some way to so, quote unquote change transfer. I mean, yeah, you can sign over your executor, whoever you want, I guess, is like really the question at the end of the day. Um, So I think that's definitely an approach. I think, yeah, I think this person's just very, very tired of dealing with their sister, dealing with like having to make these difficult decisions that, you know, I doubt their mother even anticipated having to make. And I don't think, I think right now this person's kind of struggling because they want to just kind of change their sister's behavior. And that's something you can't do. You can't really change, but you can at least change the circumstances in which you have the control over um, having to make these decisions. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I just think it's hard when it's like, I feel like I'm in the position of, I have to, as long as there's money in this account, continually act as my mother's proxy. And I just, if this were me and I were feeling like I've been doing this for years, it's mostly been exhausting. It mostly causes fights. I would find out like legally, what can I and can't I use this money for so that I had a really clear picture of what I couldn't, couldn't do. Um, and then just look into, I've been the executor here for years. It's exhausting. I'm done. Um, and, and even if your siblings get upset with you for that, that feels like a, a fight you'd be maybe more prepared to have of just like, this has been a lot of extra work for me and I'm done with it. And, you know, I, I'm willing to take your input into who should take over. Maybe you are, maybe you aren't. So don't say that if you're not willing. Um, but then you can just kind of stand by your decision and say, like, I get that you don't like it, but I was the executor. It was my prerogative to step down. This person is now committed to carrying out the initial, uh, like, interests of the trust. I'm no longer in charge. Um, you're going to have to take it up with someone else. I just think that's probably going to be your best way out of here. Yeah, that that sounds about right. Like, let let the law as we conceive of it in this broad circumstance of, you know, nebulous rules and loopholes do do the work for you. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, this sounds like a job that you don't enjoy or get a lot out of. And I think you should quit. Walk away. All right. Let's move on to a totally different topic. And this time I'm pretty sure it's your turn to read. It, you are correct in that one. All right. Subject line, my dear friend, the weapons maker. Dear Prudence, a dear friend of mine and I both recently graduated college. She told me she was going to be a radio engineer. She always wanted to work in aerospace, so I was proud. She claimed her new company is, quote, unlikely to be creating tech for the military, although they are a big defense contractor, and if anything, she would help with planes. She seems well-intentioned, if a bit questionable. But... Recently, her dad made a Facebook post on her birthday saying how proud he is that his daughter is going to be a radio and weapons engineer. I am so ashamed that she would help make weapons, and I'm angry because she lied to me. What really gets me is that she is also anti-military. She knows what she's doing. I understand that she's getting into debt from getting her degree, but she's choosing to contribute to imperialism and needless war to get out of debt. She's going to help create the weapons that kill people. I'm disgusted. Prudy, how do I even begin to approach this with her? This one feels 
as, as painful as it is, pretty straightforward. You, you tell your friend, I'm angry that you're going to be making weapons and I'm angry that you lied to me about it. My values are such that I don't think it's right to make weapons. Like that's, that's it, right? That's the fight you have. Basically, I feel this escalated without communication between these two, it seems like that seems to be the problem here in a little way is that the, you know, the, the letter writer read the post that the dad put up and then it was like, oh, this is, this is what's going on. And I feel like this is just a simple conversation. I think it's one that, again, we're kind of putting the people together, like, quote, like, I know we are both anti-military and we've discussed this. And so I just need some clarification about what you're doing at your job. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think it may be a fight. It may not go well. You may not convince her not to do it, but you also might, or you might plant a seed for her to reconsider later. Um, I think, you know, given the information that she's working for a defense contractor and making planes, um, you know, planes carry weapons. So it's not like, um, it's not like it would have been fine or, or not a contradiction of your values if she was just making planes for the military. I don't know um, if you've seen the uh, Studio Ghibli film, The Wind Rises, about the the guy who designed the kamikaze planes in the World War II for Japan. And like his whole idea is like, oh, I'm making these great artistic objects that are just these beautiful planes that, of course, were like super destructive. I, I haven't seen that one. I've seen Porco Rossi, um, which I really enjoyed. And I know, I think that Miyazaki has a lot of um, like thoughtful meditations about like pacifism and, and war in a lot of his movies. Um, but I think this friend is in denial, and I think partially because, like, the way that these companies are set up and the way that capital is set up to, quote, you know, alienate us from the products of our labor, I feel like this person that's maybe working at this company doesn't see that they're working, is, doesn't see the line of the chain of command of where their work fits into this whole project of the company. And I think just almost in a way this conversation might just be the prod for the, the friend to kind of realize what they're doing. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would ultimately say, you know, if if your values, which I, I think I would share in your situation, are, I don't want to be distracted by whether, or not, like, I don't want to get into a sort of how many angels can dance on the head of a pin argument about, like, well, I'm not exactly making the bomb; I'm making the plane that would carry the bomb. You know, you you don't have to try to split hairs about that. You can state your objections, tell her that you're confused, and you know, ask her what she thinks. What is she doing? How does this line up with her values? And then you two can have a fight about it. This is a good thing to fight about with somebody you care about. It's important. It speaks to your core values. And it's not something that you can just paper over and say like, no biggie. So have this fight. Be honest. Speak both calmly where you can. And don't go to kind of the last resort of like, you're evil and I hate you, but speak clearly about why you think that this is wrong and then give her the opportunity to respond. And then depending on what her response is, you can see if there's a future to this friendship or there there isn't. But I think that's kind of it. I think you just, there's no way through this but to have conflict. Yeah, it feels like the the friend and this person have had this conversation about their feelings about the military before. So it's not even like this is, we don't know each other's values unless maybe that's what this conversation reveals. And so, oh, maybe right. our values are just genuinely different. And that's the point where then you're going to have to make, I guess, really the tough decision is like, well, is this enough that I really do need to end this friendship? And I feel like the letter writer is 
heading toward that point if that's the case, that there's just no way to sort of, you know, square these two, uh, this friendship with this ideology. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the only way out of this one is through it. And I wish you the best. I hope your friend listens to you. Yeah. I hope she finds other work. It's a it's a j- tough job market, but I feel like she's got transferable skills. It's, yeah. There are a lot of other things you can build. Um, let's move on to a nice, easy, great. Th- I love this question because this is just like. I have one line on my notes here. So it's just like, you, you, you're, you're just a good person. And thank great. you. Great. Yeah. Okay. So the subject line of this one is dinner for new parents. Dear Prudence. A colleague of mine and his wife had a baby just before our state's stay-at-home order went into effect. Their families live outside the country, and so they've had no help and seen no one during quarantine. I had a baby myself last fall, and I know just how hard those first few months can be, especially without help. I've arranged with them to deliver meals a few times. I just left food on the porch and texted to let them know it was there. And I'd really like to keep doing it, but I don't want to impose. Is there a low-pressure way of offering to do this weekly? They've had deliveries from one or two other colleagues, meal train style, but I'm pretty sure those were one-offs. I can only imagine the additional stress and fatigue of isolation combined with a newborn. I'd love to do what I can to make things just a little easier. Am I overthinking this? Nope. No, that's a totally thoughtful thing to want to consider. I think what you want to do is great. And I also really understand that you don't want to impose, but I think all you have to do is just ask them what you asked us. It was easy for me to do. I'd love to keep doing it regularly. Does that work for you? Yeah. And I think like, if anything, once you have this phone call, maybe it's just like, check in, like, is there a preferred protocol? But it seems like they already have something set up. Do you want any paper or plastic if that's necessary? But it seems like, you know, this person is being an absolute superstar and helping out. Um, I'm sure this couple, um, I, I, I was trying to, I was working on these questions with my girlfriend. We were trying to figure out like, is there a way that we could see that the couple in the, that had the baby might say no and might feel like it's a little too imposing. And like, I guess it's possible, but I also feel like then you asked, you can feel like you were more than open to doing, and you can always say, well, I'll leave the door open. uh, If you know, you want to, you decide elsewise, but, I think um, you should totally just get on the phone, tell them what you told us, and yeah, and I'm sure they'll be happy to uh, accept the offer. Yeah, I think so too. And if they say no, you know, take them at their word, assume that they really are holding up okay and have whatever food arrangements are working for them. Um, And then you can either say, well, let me know if there's anything else you ever need. I'm always available to run the occasional errand. And then if you still kind of feel like, oh, I wish I could be helpful to somebody, maybe reach out to your local food bank or Mm -hmm. organizations like the mutual aid organizations that might be popping up in your city to see if there's other households that are in need that you might be able to help out with. I'm not suggesting that like if they say no, go become like a full-time volunteer and make meals for 100 people every week. But that's just one option if this particular avenue, you know, if they turn out to not need as much help and you're like, oh, I want to help somebody. There's opportunities to do that elsewhere. But this is great. It's not an offensive question. If they want to say no, they'll just say no. And I know there's a lot of restaurants right now that have sort of options where you can, you know, add extra donation. Or I know a couple of the restaurants here in Oakland are doing where you buy a meal for a health worker for homeless uh, to help out in any way. So, you know, you can almost like there's so many different ways to help out if you're not if this couple decides uh, that they they're good. They're okay. They'll be fine. 
you know, help yeah. someone else and we'll, we'll be, we'll take care of it just fine. But it's not like an intrusive offer. It's not, I didn't read this and think like, oh, that would be a weird thing to do for a colleague. No, you're totally within reasonable limits here. So good luck. Yeah. Yeah. That was lovely. I'm so glad. Uh, I, I hope I always have a question like that every week. That's just nice and easy. Will you take our next letter? All right. This one's a little tougher. Subject line, need to mourn alone. Dear Prudence, I lost my dog last weekend after a very brief illness. I had him for over 13 years and it was fairly sudden. My mom also really loved the dog, referring to him as her, quote, grand dog, and watched him a lot while I was away from work. Because of COVID-19, she wasn't able to say goodbye to him. Now she calls multiple times a day to ask me to recount the final moments of his life over and over. She also asks repeatedly for me to send all the pictures of him I can find. I know she just wants to feel like she was there, but it's painful and it's too much to keep reliving this. How can I ask her to back off without dismissing her grief? She's pretty easily offended, and I tend to be a little too blunt. I want to be gentle with her, but I need some space to let my own grief settle in. I'm not sure how to communicate that without hurting her feelings. So this does not strike me as a too blunt request. I'm really sorry this person lost their dog. It sounds like they probably had a really, really good dog. And I think it's just... I feel like part of the issue here is that the letter writer has problems in the past communicating with their mother in mm-hmm. slightly blunt terms. And I I know this from my own personal experience that I can be a little blunt with my mom more than I necessarily mean to, just because that's sometimes how these, uh, you know, relationships go. And I think it's just going to be communicating openly and honestly here. Yeah, I, I think pretty much the same thing. I think in terms of like sending her the pictures, what you can do there is say like, when I'm able to sit down and look through them without falling apart, I will send them to you. I will let you know when I'm ready to do that. In the meantime, please respect that I need time. Um, so that, you know, that's something where you can say like, you will get those pictures. I want to send them to you. I need a little time to do it. And then the other thing, which is just, I'm not able to walk you through his last day again today. That is a lot to do. It may hurt her feelings, and I get that that will feel hard. But there's, again, that's the only way through this is you just have to say like, mom, I can't keep having this conversation with you day after day. I understand that you're hurting. I'm hurting too. I want you to be able to talk about this with other people in your life. I'm not trying to tell you how to feel. I'm just letting you know I can't do this day after day. I need to call him, you know, hit a moratorium button. Sorry, you don't need to use that word, but I couldn't think of a synonym quickly enough. Um, I, I can't keep doing that. So if you want to call and just talk about other things, I'm available, but I need a break. And I'm not sure if this has been part of the issue, but I wonder if the letter writer can acknowledge the mother's grief to her, like something along the lines of like, quote, like, I know how much it hurts you that you couldn't be there. Right. Just to sort of to sort of set the terms of the conversation that like the letter writer you know, maybe hasn't acknowledged the, the the mother's grief at all. And maybe just acknowledging her grief will help her be able mm-hmm. to realize that she needs to maybe step back for a second. And so, because once the letter writer acknowledges um, the mother's grief, then the letter writer can maybe acknowledge their own grief and the way that they need to process. And that might, again, kind of like the first question, help bring the mother into the process by backing away a little. 
Mm-hmm. I do hear that. I do think my, my read is if, if the letter writer's been taking calls from their mother multiple times a day and talking about what that last day of the dog's life was, my, my read there was that they had already done that. So I, I, I agree that the conversation should definitely start with an acknowledgement of how hard it is for the mom. But it, it does seem to me like the letter writer has already been doing that. So advice there would be the same. I just, I, I think the letter writer has already been doing that. And so then I just think that's what you need to tell your mom that you need. And if her response to that is, no, I'm so upset that you have to talk to me four times a day about the death of your dog, you can lovingly say no. Um, I think that's hard. It can sometimes feel like I know how to be blunt and say no to my mom, or I know how to offer space for her feelings and give her whatever she wants. And I don't really know how to combine the two because it is difficult. It can feel difficult to say no lovingly. It feels like, well, no isn't loving. But it is. It is. It's it's an okay, an appropriate, and a kind thing to do. It's not cruel. It's not withholding. It's not dismissive. It's not indifferent. You've given her a lot of room to grieve very messily on you. And now you need to say, I love you. I know this is so hard. I know you wanted to be with him. It's not that we can never talk about the dog again, but I can't keep taking these calls where we relive his last hours. So those need to stop. And I will let you know in a little while when I'm ready to send you the pictures. Absolutely. But that's loving, I think. Yeah. I mean, this is like the first thing I ever learned in therapy is you can't control other people's feelings and emotions. You can only control your own. And I feel like the letter writer is just Honestly, going to Peter, have to. Honestly, I'm still holding out hope that I can. <laughs> it, it's the, the, I'm sure the pharmaceutical companies are working on it. Um, but <laughs> I think this is just going to be, it's going to be a sucky conversation and you're going to have it. And maybe the mom will change her, you know, stance a little bit. Maybe she won't, but you'll feel better once you've had the conversation. Yep. Yeah. And if she were to keep pushing those boundaries, you know, if she called and started doing it again, you would then just be able to say, Mom, we've talked about this. I love you, but I'm going to have to hang up the phone. Um, And again, that's not blunt. That's not mean. It's okay. All right. This last question, I will admit, fuels certain stereotypes I have had about people who work in the tech community. (laughs) I'm pretty sure this is a problem from like the logic puzzles they put on the LSAT. I'm like 95% (laughs) sure it's from there. I mean, yeah, all it needs is like a fox, a chicken, and a bag of grain, yeah. and then uh, we're ready to go. So the subject is, who should stop cooking? Dear Prudence, I live in a house with three roommates. There's one medium-sized kitchen. All four of us work in tech and used to eat most of our meals at the work cafeteria. Now that we're working from home indefinitely, we're all vying for cooking space and time. Three meals per day for three different people was adding up to a lot of conflict over space and smells that hadn't been an issue before. We agreed we'd rotate kitchen hours and allocate based on greatest need. But now we're stuck. Surprisingly, none of us ranked ourselves as highest need, but there's still a three-way tie. Roommate A has a very low-paying job in tech and can't afford to eat out frequently in our expensive city. Roommate B makes more money, but has food allergies that make takeout potentially dangerous. Roommate C is also social distancing with his girlfriend, a nurse who's likely been exposed, and no one wants him bringing the hospital germs into the kitchen. I'm roommate D, so I'm the tiebreaker. Who should I pick as the, quote, winner of more cooking hours? Are we missing a better solution? I know this may sound ridiculous, but the issue is really affecting quality of life in an already cramped household. So I think the first question that I had was, what is this social distancing practice of roommate C's? It doesn't I'm unclear on what's happening there. Like, is she living with you all, but just staying in his room? 
is she going to get milk or anything or right is he going over to her place like i i, I don't i don't want to like go too far down that rabbit hole i'm just um i'm a little confused were you confused there as well yeah i mean it just seems like there's an agreement between the four roommates that this roommate c should not be cooking as much mm-hmm. and should be more relying on takeout or something but but i feel like trying to pick this winner between this group is kind of like insane making. And I feel like there's the good and the bad here. I think the good is like, it seems that there's some communication between these four roommates and they seem to be amicable based on the fact that like none of them rank themselves as like a higher need. So like there's some sense that like we're, you know, trying to adjust for each other. But at the same point, this question that like roommate D, the letter writer needs to decide for everyone. And that's going to be the law of the land is not like, I feel the best approach to this situation. Right. I mean, like one of the thoughts that I was struck with was like, why not approach this from a slightly more collaborative yes, spirit absolutely. and try to occasionally make meals together? Yeah. I, I had this great idea. I had like, let's, everyone needs to share meals. If, you know, like roommate A is worried about the money, like, why don't you just like, you know, adjust like the costs for everyone. But like, you know, this is the thing where like pasta salads, Roasting a chicken, uh, like, you know, double checking on, Beans of course, on all the allergies. Like, this is the thing where, like, if everyone meal plans together, like, I feel like this is very, very solvable. Yeah. And again, I realize that, like, you're all in a new situation. You haven't been cooking for yourselves independently for a very long time. So joining together is also bringing up a lot of new issues. And I'm not suggesting you all have to eat the same meal morning, noon, and night every day of the week. But, man, wouldn't it be easier if, like, Three nights a week, you all agreed to, like, take turns making dinner for the house. Yeah. And, like, you know, everybody could kind of rotate there. And, you know, I imagine it it wouldn't be too difficult to incorporate roommate B's food allergies just as a kind of given. Like, you don't say they're allergic to, like, 20 different things that would make food impossible for the rest of you. So it it might be possible for you to all treat the kitchen as, like, an allergy-free space to whatever extent that's possible or at least minimally allergen presence. But but yeah, that strikes me as one obvious solution is to go in together on at least some of your meals each week um, so that everyone's rotating, like cooking for the house, doing the dishes. Um, so it's not just like four separate people going in and making four separate dinners every night. I mean, there's, there's going to be less to clean. They're going to save money. I feel like this is like a great moment for these four tech people who are all in industries that are all individualistic to try forming a commune. And then I feel it's a chance for the tech industry to just try communism and it'll all work out in the end. Yeah. Yeah. And I realize you're not going to, as a household, introduce communism uh, overnight and uh, no one has to, um, you know, you don't all have to march in lockstep over this, but there's definitely, you can move a little bit closer yeah. towards the the commune approach, um, I think. Yeah, that that strikes me as one way that it would really cut down on the time you all need to spend in the kitchen. So I would float that as an idea, see how your roommates feel about it. Start with like, what if two nights a week we all make dinner together, see how that goes. And if those nights work better than the other nights, maybe we can ramp it up. And again, you're all used to uh, eating in cafeterias or doing takeout more often and having other people handle the cooking and prep and cleanup. So it will be a learning curve. But I promise you, you are all capable of figuring this out. Even if the meals aren't all gourmet, you'll be able to find ways to make like good, relatively inexpensive meals. There's lots and lots of websites and tutorials available for someone who's learning to cook for a group. 
there are ways that you can lean on one another to make this less difficult. Like it is, as you, as you've noticed, it's harder for you all to act like four separate individuals who just happen to live together than it would be for you to think of yourselves as a group. I feel like, and this is not like a product advertisement at all. I just mean like, I feel this is a place where an instant pot's going to be very, very helpful for everyone to like just getting a meal ready. And then like even something that can just sit in a pot and people can take yes. as they need, like great, that that's going to take care of a lot of issues. Yeah. Or even like Googling like sheet pan recipes yeah. or like, you know, any recipes where the focus is like, it's relatively inexpensive and you don't use every dish in the house. There's tons of websites and video channels that that do that sort of cooking. So yeah. you are, the, the good news here is this is a problem lots of people have had. And so there's lots of solutions available to you. Beyond that, I would say, rather than looking at the winner of the most cooking hours um, is for you all to kind of get together and say like, what do I need? Are there ways in which our needs are in alignment that we can help one another out? Doesn't mean you all have to be best friends or commit to live together for the rest of your lives. But instead of looking for one single winner, look for ways that you can all as a household meet your needs together. That I think is going to be your way out. Absolutely. And good luck. This is tricky. It's hard when you have different budgets. It's hard to cook around allergies for the first time. But it's also, uh, you know, it's possible, right? Like accommodating other people's life-threatening allergies is actually really important. And people can do it. And you can do it in ways that don't um, obliterate your own ability to, uh, you know, sometimes have other meals that are separate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, actually, I had some friends over. This was like a little bit last year when uh, before COVID times where, you know, I had people and I guess they're, they're, partially orthodox, some sort of orthodox Jewish. And I had to be like, oh, so I can't combine uh, dairy and meat before. And that was like a learning experience, but it was like totally easy. I was able to like really rethink my dinner plan very, very quickly. I mean, I spend a lot of time cooking. I'm like the cook in uh, my apartment here. So like, that's kind of all I prefer to be doing, but, but I'm sure these people can figure it out. And it's like, Again, like, yeah, the recipe websites that kind of like keep everything simple and easy. And I think because that's, I think, the big worry that maybe these people are here are like if four people are trying to make four different types of mac and cheese at once, like that gets really, really complicated and messy quickly. And I think but if you make one big pot of mac and cheese, like everyone wins. Right. And you can kind of all like list like here are some of my favorite foods here are foods I don't like that much. Here are some foods I know I'm pretty good at cooking. Here are foods that I'd like to learn more about cooking. And there will be some overlap. Like it's not like you have one roommate who's like, I only eat Ortolan. There will definitely be overlap in something that like it fits in the middle of the Venn diagram between like relatively inexpensive, a non-allergy and something lots of people enjoy. Everyone likes potatoes, you know, most people like beans. Pasta is a great option greens are a great option. Like you, you have, you have stuff available to you and good luck. This is like part of the problem of living with other people. And, uh, it's not always super straightforward. Sometimes it's a little messy, but it's definitely work, uh, or rather it's definitely work that's worth doing, I think. And I think the roommates will be happy to kind of have that moment of realization. Oh, I don't necessarily need to cook tonight because someone's going to be doing it for me. And I just have to cook a little extra on Wednesday or what have you. Right, right. Yeah, there's a there's a better way of looking at this than trying to pick one winner and three like runners up. So good luck. Peter, we did it. We solved everyone's problems today. Th- 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 I'm very, very glad. I really hope these people all solve their problems and, and have these difficult phone calls. And I think they'll all feel better by the end. I truly, truly hope so. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for hitting record on your end. 
that was really helpful to us. Well, thank you for hitting record. Yeah, yeah. Have a fabulous rest of the day and um, enjoy thinking about historical handshakes or never thinking about historical handshakes. Maybe you're done forever. Un- unfortunately, it never ends, as as I'm sure you know. The, the When you finish a dissertation, then you have to start a book. <laughs> I have heard that, yes. Yeah. Well, thank you again so, so much. And uh, I hope we get to have you on the show again sometime soon. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. If somebody is dealing with any kind of internalized bi or homophobia, internalized shame that may have come from the way that they were raised or an earlier part in their lives, it can be difficult if you're like, well, I'm not ashamed of it and I'm okay with it. And if you could just tell me, we could talk about it. But if the shame isn't coming from you, if it's theirs, like you can be as open as you want about it. And if they're still like, but I'm not okay with it, you know, all of your openness can't do that work for them. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash prudipod.